I had reserved a book and forgot about it at Firestone Library, which is the Princeton Library, related to suicide and the mechanics of euthanasia. It was out at the time that I made the reservation. And thankfully, things were still analog enough then that when the book came in, the alert that the book had arrived was sent as a postcard to my address on file at the registrar, which was my parents' address. My mom got this card, read between the lines, and called me with this panicked tenor in her voice, and that snapped me out of it. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Tim Ferriss. Tim is the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, including The 4-Hour Workweek and Tools of Titans, and is the host of the very popular podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. He's also a blogger and an entrepreneur and a wildly successful angel investor, having invested early in companies like Facebook, Uber, and Shopify. Now, if you're familiar with Tim's work, you're familiar with the fact that he has an amazing mind and a tendency to dive extremely deep into whatever subject or hobby catches his interest. Seriously, he's become an expert in everything from salsa dancing to horseback, archery, performance-enhancing nutrition, and stoic philosophy. In the past few years, he's been heavily invested in the research being done on psychedelics as a treatment for depression, something that Tim has dealt with his whole life. At one point, Tim's depression got so bad that he contemplated suicide, which, as a warning for listeners, is a subject we go into in this episode. Tim's journey towards finding what works best for his mental state has been in tandem with his unconventional path to professional success. My full conversation with Tim Ferriss right after this quick break. Tim Ferriss, thank you so much for joining Imposters. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So before this conversation started, I was trying to reflect on what feels like a dozen different careers that you've had. It feels like you've had many lives. I was trying to think to myself, like, what's the, the what's the through line in all this? And what I kept coming back to is this idea of insatiable curiosity. Where does this insatiable curiosity come from? Where where can you track it back to? Well, I think there's a question of of nature versus nurture, for sure. So it could be compulsive curiosity uh, out of the box. But I do think a lot of it was cultivated by my parents, my mom in particular. And I grew up without a whole lot of a whole lot of money in the family. And we would get books from the library or the remainder table, if you know that term. So the discount books. And from an early age, there were a few things that I knew to be true in the family, a bunch. But one was there was no budget for new bikes, for shiny toys. But there was, I was told explicitly, there's a budget for books. So you better become interested in reading was sort of the, I guess, implicit note there. And I did. I became a really voracious 
reader and love to read. And that was one of the outlets that I had available. I was also very, very small growing up. I was premature and uh, in terms of birth and had a lot of health issues. So I was also very badly bullied up until exactly sixth grade. So I ended up spending a lot of my time during recesses and so on reading books yet again. Secondly, my parents never made us count to 10 in French or learn to play the piano or fill in the blank. There, there wasn't a curriculum for what they wanted us to learn necessarily, but they did expose my brother and I to a lot of different things. And then if something took and we became really fascinated, it did, really did not matter what it was. My parents were very supportive in indulging those curiosities, right? So there was reward, I suppose, on a few different levels early on for curiosity. So I, I'd, I'd point it back to, to that. I think those are two formative inputs. You grew up on Long Island, and I think in a lot of ways you, you were exposed to socioeconomic differences that maybe at the time you weren't acutely aware of. But I would assume that you would not have guessed then kind of the path that you have crafted for yourself today. But did you have any sense for yourself at the time of what you wanted to be, what you wanted to do, what your aspirations were? I wanted to be a marine biologist. Then I wanted to be a comic book penciler. But I also had the awareness that at least the comic book penciling almost certainly didn't pay very much. And this was before... Marvel became the Marvel we know now as an entertainment juggernaut. Back then, it was a comic book company that was on the verge of going out of mm -hmm. business constantly. And along with that entire period of my life, let's just call it zero to 15, part of being a preemie, at least, at least this is how my mom explains it, was being in an incubator exposed to light nonstop as a newborn and I had and still have extreme onset insomnia. So I would be up until three, four in the morning constantly. And what is on TV? Because back then, no internet. So what are you doing? You're watching television. What's on television at two, three, four in the morning? Infomercials. So I did I also developed this parallel fascination with business and entrepreneurship recognizing even then that most of it seemed horribly schlocky and like nonsense, <laughs> but uh, that's what I had to watch. So I also developed a deep interest in entrepreneurship, but I, I had no idea what form that might take, none whatsoever. And if I remember correctly, when you ended up going to Princeton, you majored in East Asian studies, right? Yeah, I did. But didn't you, your senior year, you took a, an entrepreneurship class? That's right. Yeah. My last year, I took ELE 491, taught by Professor Ed Shao, spelled Z-S-C-H-A-U. And Ed was a former congressman. He was also one, if not the first, one of the first to ever teach computer science, period. But at Stanford, he had won a million awards at Harvard Business School as a lecturer. He'd also taken multiple companies public and at some point had been a competitive figure skater. So this guy 
<laughs> I can see why he would appeal to me. And he was a brilliant teacher, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant teacher. The class was high-tech entrepreneurship, and this was 99, 2000. So we're talking about mm -hmm. peak bubble, but the principles in the class transcended that particular decade, let's just say, or that, that particular span of time in the dot-com mania. And it was an exciting time, even though it was all about to go to hell in a handbasket, much like the last, say, six months for crypto, the feeling of excitement and optimism was intoxicating and eventually found my way to Silicon Valley uh, because of that class and a company I got to know and a CEO, a very young CEO that I got to know at the time through writing a final project paper on a particular startup. I want to talk about that startup and ultimately your first experience building your own startup. But something I want to kind of explore in parallel to that is your early experience with your own mental health, um, mm -hmm. your awareness around it, and also how you navigated it while starting your professional career. And so, you know, something that you've been open about in both facing the challenge of, but also the kind of the research side of psychedelics and how they can help it is your experience with depression. Talk for a second about when your first memory of a depressive episode is and how you navigated your depression throughout college and in your early professional career as you were starting to kind of do things and, and make a name for yourself. So first depressive episode is not something I can easily recall because it's uh, mm -hmm. akin to the the famous commencement speech by David Foster Wallace where he tells the story of two young fish swimming and they swim by an older fish and the old fish says, how's the water, boys? And they kind of go by <laughs> with a quizzical look on their faces and then one turns to the other and says, what the hell is water, right? For me, depression, which I didn't really have a label for at the time, was just the backdrop for everything. And I have depression in my family. It, it almost certainly has a, I know it does, have a genetic component. I mean, you can predict depression based on my genetic profile pretty easily. And it's been there as long as I can remember. I mean, let's call it 11 or 12, perhaps, would be maybe my first memories of feeling that darkness, say, in my room at home on Long Island. So somewhere around there, I'd say 11 or 12. How did I manage it? poorly, I would say. I, there was no managing. I didn't know. I didn't even have a label for what I was experiencing, let alone any type of toolkit to address it. I would say the saving grace probably was competitive sports. Now, there's a mixed blessing in that in the sense that I competed as a wrestler for a, a very long time, at least up until first year of college. And then I, I stopped in college because it, it wasn't a very compelling wrestling program at Princeton. And uh, Around 1415, a upperclassman introduced me to ephedrine. And this was a seminal moment and not, a, not an altogether great inflection point because I took ephedrine, which is a very strong stimulant. It's found in primatine mist 
in other medications, which is why you cannot buy them any longer at bulk if you go to a CVS, because they can be freebased into methamphetamine. And uh, they're very powerful as stimulants. Now, th- this is particularly true if you start to do what this, this uh, senior recommended, which was combining it in a stack. I, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. I advise against anyone doing this. But combining ephedrine with caffeine and aspirin and what was referred to and still is as the ECA stack. And that was predominantly sold in athletic communities for fat loss. But what it ended up doing or becoming for me was self-medication because I became a different person when I took these things. And what started out as a once every other day type of dosing became once a day and then twice a day and then three times a day. And uh, that became a significant problem in my life was effectively addiction to stimulants, not just psychological addiction, but physical addiction. If you think caffeine withdrawal is bad, try using an ECA stack three times a day and then trying to cut off of that. (laughs) It's it's not going to be a cakewalk. And flash forward, I ended up taking a year away from school to attempt to finish what I would consider a suicide, I mean, metaphorically speaking, kind of suicide mission, doomed to fail thesis project which is a huge component of your four-year departmental GPA at Princeton. And towards the, I'd say the midpoint or three quarters into that year off, decided to kill myself. Wasn't just contemplating it, like decided, planned, calendared, was going to off myself. And I had reserved a book and forgot about it at Firestone Library, which is the Princeton Library, related to suicide and the mechanics of euthanasia. It was out at the time that I made the reservation. And thankfully, things were still analog enough then that when the book came in, the alert that the book had arrived was sent as a postcard to my address on file at the registrar, which was my parents' address. I'd forgotten to update my mailing address. My mom got this card, read between the lines, and called me with this panicked tenor in her voice, and that snapped me out of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. There was a lot in there's there's a lot that went into unwinding that, but I did not go through with killing myself clearly, and that is, I think, the beginning of beginning to take management and treatment more seriously. Tim's description of contemplating suicide and then being woken up to the potential consequences of it by a phone call from his mom is so profoundly important. As Tim mentioned earlier, depression was such an inherent part of his life for so long that he didn't fully recognize that he was suffering from it. That's why when you or someone you know is showing signs of hopelessness, it is so incredibly imperative to pay attention to these cries for help. Thankfully, both Tim and his mother did. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we hear more about Tim's first foray into the working world and how his handling of his mental health evolved as his career began to take off. Stay with us. And we're back. Before the break, Tim described his brush with suicide in college and how the experience caused him to take his mental health more seriously. 
Tim graduated from Princeton, and because of the influence of his high-tech entrepreneurship class, he moved out west and got a job in tech. Unfortunately, it was right around the time that the dot-com bubble was about to burst. So <laughs> graduate, and I get a, a desk shoved into the fire exit. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely not up to code. <laughs> Doing outside sales for storage area networking, fiber channel. So competing against incumbents like Network Appliance, NetApp, and EMC, and so on. When entire departments started getting laid off, I knew my time was probably up and it wasn't going to be long. If inside sales gets fired, you know outside sales is going pretty soon. And I thought to myself, well, I'm about to get fired. I may have a little bit of severance. Everybody assumes right now that the sort of uh, startup winter is here. So it's not like I'm getting laid off and people will look at a gap in the resume and say, WTF, how do you explain this? They'll look at the time frame and be like, oh yeah, everything got nuked. And uh, I wanted to kick the tires and see if I could create something that would generate enough income to, at least in the beginning, at least cover my expenses, right? To make something that was profitably self-sustaining. And uh, I was majoring in psychology with an emphasis on neuroscience. And uh, I volunteered to be a test subject in all sorts of things, including experiments that Daniel Kahneman's <laughs> group was doing. And it was a fascinating time to be there. But throughout undergrad, I was ordering all sorts of supplements and also drugs. I was using personal importation policy to get various smart drugs <laughs> and performance-enhancing <laughs> drugs for athletics mailed to me at my dorm, and I would create these cocktails. None of them were illegal, but I would create these cocktails for cognitive and physical performance enhancement. And the company I ended up starting was a sports nutrition company. Now, at the time, in fairness, it wasn't actually sports nutrition. It pivoted to be sports nutrition. It started off as a nootropic company, so producing a single product, which was called Brain Quicken at the time, which had effects and a number of the ingredients had plenty of uh, support in the literature in the sense that they, they weren't just made up hand wavy supplement ingredients but there were ingredients that had effects on recall and later realized quite a lot of effect on reaction speed so it turns out americans don't want to be smarter don't listen to what they tell you. They don't care. So the the nootropic angle didn't work at all. And uh, I began getting feedback from NCAA athletes who were setting new PRs, like personal records, and in some cases, breaking records using this product. And ultimately, it took me a while to see the signal and accept it, but pivoted entirely to calling the product a neural accelerator for sports use. And it was very, I focused on very niche sports, predominantly fight sports, so early MMA, kickboxing, powerlifting. And that's how it first got traction. And then it ultimately ended up being distributed in somewhere between six and 12 countries and was available in different places at retail and did pretty well for a first real company. I want to talk about how this experience ended up being parlayed into 
four-hour work week. But I want to go back for a second to your history with your mental health. And you, you spoke about what it was like in, let's call it your adolescent to college years and, and what your coping mechanisms were. I'm interested, how was your mental health and your depression as you were running your business, knowing that I believe you were working like 80 hours a week or 80 hours plus a week to the point oh, where yeah. I was working nonstop. Yeah. So, so what was the state of your mental health? Were you doing anything for your mental health? What did it look like at this point in time? There are a couple of factors that I think are worth underscoring. So the first is I moved from New England where you have gray five months of the year to Peninsula, California, where it's sunny basically every day. That in and of itself probably put me in a better place. This is this is speculation, but mm -hmm. I probably felt better on a day-to-day -day basis from that than had I stayed on the East Coast and been put on a whole boatload of medications, right? So the wear of happiness and those environmental factors, I think, are, are a huge lever that people can pull. In this case, that alone, I would say, cut my incidence of lower energy or depressive days down by 60-70% without question. Now, on top of that, the sense of purpose and singular focus that comes from building an early stage company is incredibly supportive, I find. And I'm not the only one. I mean, I've spoken as you have with a lot of founders. <laughs> that singular focus, the decision that removes a thousand other decisions, can be very stress relieving. It seems strange because from the outside, you look at it and it's like, God, this guy's working or this, this woman is working 80 hours a week. How could they possibly be happy? Like they barely have enough time to take a shit. How could they possibly be happy? <laughs> and uh, the reality is that the type of people often who succeed in building these businesses in any capacity do better with a clear mission and focus than they do without. Yeah. So having that focus I did really well with that. So I was not taking any conventional medications. I was still self-medicating 100% with stimulants, absolutely. The, the same ECA stack, I deviated from that very rarely. So those are the first few things that come to mind. I was reading quite a bit of Stoic philosophy to preserve my energy for building the business, basically, because I didn't. the more reactive I was, the less reserve I had to apply to the business. So uh, those, are, those are a few things that come to mind with respect to mental health. I think what you just shared actually kind of just sheds a light in that there are so many different modalities to kind of customizing the, the routine you need to take care of your mental health. And I think oftentimes people just think it has to be, you know, a licensed therapist or a psychiatrist. It has to be medication. And that does work for some people, but it is not the only set of tools. And I think for you, obviously, you've talked a lot about this on your podcast. You've kind of explored the full gamut of tools to understand what works for you. One thing I'm wondering is, you said how building your first business, right, there was this singular focus and actually is very settling. Why did you not build another business then after your first company? Why did you end up going the route of writing your first book? I burned out. 
<laughs> like the physical <laughs> substrate was gone. I just, I, I had my foot on the pedal, but there's just nothing left. Uh, the, the machine was just broken. You know, there is, there is a limit <laughs> to how hard and how long you can go there. And you found it. Yeah. I, I slammed into the wall at hundred miles an hour. So, uh, I, I would say, why didn't I build another business? Uh, I had, fully intended after the first, which you know, I sold for a very small, you know, modest sum of money. I mean, it was meaningful to me at the time. But what happened was Ed Shao, the professor you mentioned earlier, had asked me beginning in maybe 2003 to come back to that class, ELE 491, and to guest lecture twice a year because most of the speakers who came to that class were in venture-backed startups. I was not an venture back startup. I was bootstrapping everything and spinning a million plates myself as an, the only full-time employee. And that made for a contrast and just provided a different perspective to students. So I went back twice a year for 10 years and talked about my lessons learned. And over the course of, say, 2004 onward, where I burned out the girlfriend broke up with me, gave me this like Dear John letter about work-life balance. Uh, ended up automating and fixing a lot of what was broken about the business. Over this period of time, I'm still giving these lectures. And I would ask students for feedback at the end of every lecture, and they would fill out a little form that Ed would send them. And Princeton students can be dick faces. I mean, they're <laughs> like, they're a lot of them are arrogant and pompous, and not all of them, but some dude put in the other comments section, he's like, I don't understand why you're giving lectures to a group of students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? And so I chatted with a friend of mine who was a successful author and asked him what he thought. And before I had a chance to say no, true story, he started email introducing me to agents and editors and so on to have conversations, which I wasn't ready for. And that mm -hmm. then led to writing the book. But I planned, fully planned on starting more businesses. After Tim's first book, The 4-Hour Workweek came out, Tim's career absolutely took off. The following year, Tim spoke at South by Southwest and the reaction was so strong that Tim went on to publish four more books, including another New York Times bestseller, and he also launched his podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, which today is consistently among the top listened business podcasts with tens of millions of listeners. But I know that for Tim, fame and success is not everything. He's been open about the fact that it's been an ongoing struggle learning how to accept himself, and that though he's learned a lot about what keeps him in a healthy mental state, it's an ongoing process. So I wanted to know where he sits with all of that today. We've talked about a number of challenges that you faced across your career and in spite or irrespective of these challenges, you've managed to be wildly successful. I would say one big challenge was the challenge of having to navigate being bullied, which is a really shitty experience that unfortunately a lot of people have to go through. The, the second is your experience with depression from, let's call it, your adolescence to today in some form. Um, there's one last challenge that I actually think is an even bigger challenge that you face, that everyone faces, and, and I'd be interested to hear how you've navigated it. And that is the challenge of 
accepting yourself and of loving yourself fully. Where are you right now on that journey of facing that challenge? I'd say mostly I am simultaneously like the pinata and like the kid, like an eight-year-old boy with a <laughs> wiffle ball bat and a bandana tied over his eyes trying to smack the shit out of the pinata. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I think that this is my life project. And I do feel like it is an ongoing process. My experience is that almost anyone who is, let's say, obsessively engaged with anything enough to become really good at it uh, is often running from something and not running towards something. I mean, 99 times out of 100. It's really consistent, <laughs> which is why startup founders do so poorly when they have this like huge exit and everybody expects they're going to be just kumbaya forever. Oh my God, high fives. Like life is great. And you just, you see people psychologically crater once they don't have a rabbit to chase around the arena. So what I would say for myself is that I have found tools that are consistently helpful. Stoic philosophy, very helpful. Morning pages, very helpful. Uh, the work by Byron Katie for scrutinizing your beliefs, which are thoughts that you take to be true, very important if you want to have any degree. If you're hyperanalytical and trapped in your head a lot, as I am, and kind of language overweighted, the work by Byron Katie in those worksheets is very helpful for preventing or minimizing the likelihood that you retreat into a repetitive story that is disabling you. IFS, internal family systems, as a therapy modality. Parts work, I think, incredibly helpful. And also, and I, I should say, right after I mentioned psychedelic therapies, I should say that some people are under the impression that I am a nonstop rah-rah cheerleader for psychedelic therapies. That is not true. I support a lot of science, and I have for a long time, and I feel very good about that. But I talk more people out of using psychedelics than I talk into using psychedelics because you're, you're harnessing nuclear power. Very powerful molecules, Yeah, incredible applications to certain conditions, and they have been absolutely pivotal in my ability to look at myself as a collection of conditioning and stories, many of which I inherited or absorbed. I didn't arrive at these things logically. Uh, so gaining that observer perspective, and there's more to the story, but I've certainly found psychedelic medicine to be an accelerant but you can accelerate in the wrong direction. You can accelerate towards schizophrenia, for instance, if, if you have a family predisposition. So those are a few of the things that I have found to contribute to my increased ability to self-accept and to not just, by the way, not just give love to myself or express love to other people, but to receive it from other people. My experience and also my observation has been, if you can't accept love fully from other people, chances are you, you have a simultaneous issue with 
self-acceptance and uh, also love or compassion directed at you. Uh, so I'm making progress. I'm making progress. I don't, I try not to let perfect be the enemy of good. And yeah, one day at a time, man. <laughs> That's how I try to take it. And just to leave listeners, and <laughs> I'm using listeners in the general, but I'm really just referring to myself, but we're going to say listeners. Uh, for listeners who have been striving for so long to find success, to, to have that next rung on the ladder, and you know they look at you in five books, 10 to 20 million downloads a month, angel invested in all these unicorns from Uber to Facebook to Shopify, but they realize they don't, they feel empty in some ways still. Yeah. And they're like, what the fuck do I do now? I don't know where to start to try to find this sense of fillness, this, this sense of being okay with myself at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Where would you guide them to start? I would start with diversifying your friend group. So if your main friend group is type A serial entrepreneurs, you are going to find what you just described. And I'm I'm simplifying here, right? This this type of malaise can affect all sorts of people, every race, gender, creed, nationality, right? It does not discriminate. But for the sake of simplicity, if we're talking, if if most of your friends are driven serial entrepreneurs, you're just swimming in everything that you just described. <laughs> and uh, you may not have role models. You may not be able to absorb or average into someone who does not seem to have this problem or who has solved this problem. So for me, part of spending time around people who are world-class in a discipline where they are not hugely financially rewarded and yet they have pure dedication is a very important medicine. So yeah, when, when I say I'm deeply interested in animal tracking, another way to say that, and this is really important, is not that I'm deeply interested in animal tracking. What I'm deeply interested in is people who have dedicated their lives to animal tracking. Archery, same story. Yeah, I am interested in spending time with people who spend incredible amounts of time becoming expert in archery, finding pleasure in the process and joy in the discovery, even though they do not get paid at all or they get paid very little for it. And I would start there. You said where to start. I would say you're the average of the five people you associate with most, and that's going to be true of their problems, their neuroses, their strengths, their weaknesses. So maybe... I love that. Diversify and see what you can absorb because it's, man, the hyper-analytical, uh, you know, Ayn Rand hero builder archetype is so highly valued in the U.S., the rugged individualist and enlightened self-interest, blah, blah, blah. And there's a place for that. But man, it's like if you want to build a house and you only know how to use a hammer, you're not going to build a great house. <laughs> <laughs> and that's easier to say once you've achieved some degree of financial success. I get it. But I will say, if I look at the friends I respect most who have summited the mountain, they have all experienced some version of what we're talking about. And I think it's, uh, it's great to sort of set a, 
safety net before you need it. And I think a good way to do that is to develop some friendships with people you may not automatically pick out of a lineup. (laughs) Love it. Tim Ferriss, thank you so much for joining Imposters. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What stands out to me about my conversation with Tim is his consistent scientific approach to his own mental health. It's something that he's applied to every entrepreneurial venture in his life, whether it's podcasting, writing, or investing in startups. I believe that when we look at our minds as a project to work on, just like our jobs, we can find solutions that work for us at a faster rate. Another takeaway from this conversation is that I think we should all be open to this idea that there isn't one path to finding a healthy mental state. While traditional psychotherapy could be the right path for you, Tim's study of Stoic philosophy and openness towards psychedelic therapy is what really helped him. It was another example of how curiosity can lead to something highly impactful in your life. So be sure to take stock in your interests and be open to new experiences. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on Imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Makila Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. 